Hey everyone, my online course on the rehabilitation of the fitness athlete with Dan Pope is on sale this week. If you want to work with higher level fitness athletes and help people get back into the gym after an injury, this is the course for you. Head to MikeRandall.com slash fitathlete to learn more and sign up this week. In this episode of the Sports Physical Therapy Podcast, I am joined by Scott Morrison. Scott is a physical therapist working with the U.S. Air Force Special Operations after spending 15-plus years both lifting heavy weights and treating people in the outpatient orthopedic setting. Many of you also know Scott as the chair of the American Academy of Sports Physical Therapy Sports Performance SIG, and in this episode, we're going to talk about measuring strength in the clinical setting, both for those that are just getting started as well as some more complex topics for the advanced clinician. This is going to be a good one. Welcome to the Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Reinold from MikeReinold.com. Hey, Scott, how's it going? Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Mike. Doing pretty well. Finishing awesome. up coffee. <laughs> Me too. I like it. We're both finishing our morning coffee. I really appreciate you taking the time out. We've been trying to schedule this podcast for a couple weeks, just you know, between our schedules. So uh, always helpful to have somebody like yourself joining us and sharing your experience. Um, one thing that I think is really funny for me is I feel like you're beginning to become the guy that's pigeonholed into something, right? And the guy that's online talking about measuring strength and, and handheld dynamometers, especially knee, right? Doing all those sorts of things. Um, it's funny when you talk about something a lot online, you become that pigeonhole guy, but why don't we start there? Like, how's it feel to be pigeonholed as the strength testing guy? (laughs) Hey, if if strength testing improves by my sacrifice of everything else I'm doing, uh, and I just focus on this, and it actually improves people doing it, then I'm I'm more than willing to sacrifice all the other things that are interesting to me for uh, for that. But yeah, it's That's it's always funny. interesting to see how it emerges and where it comes from. Yeah, I, I always share the story, even just with like Lenny Macrina and I at Champion. I'll have a patient where I'm rehabbing their shoulder and they're like, hey, my knee hurts. Do you think I can get an appointment to see Lenny next week? And I'm like, I, I could treat a knee too, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but, right. uh, it, it, you know, it's it's funny how the, the you know, the general perception of you, um, you know, but I think it's valid in this case because you've you've risen up a little bit because I think you saw a need, right? And you saw maybe a hole in our profession where maybe we weren't strength testing enough or we weren't doing it correctly. So, you know, kudos to you, you know, for doing that. Uh, I still think it's crazy that we, we all admit that strength is one of the more important things that we do as physical therapists. Yet, for some reason, not everybody's measuring it, and we're not assessing this, and we're not seeing people progress. Uh, why don't we start with that, and, and why do you think that is? Why do you think that's been a big barrier for people? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I agree. It's I think there's a couple questions here. One is the framework that you're operating under, and uh, if you look at the last uh, 20 or so years, the whole functional movement uh, ideology really has dominated things. And under that model, movement is what we care about. And we forget all of the um, constraints that basically create that movement. And so I think testing by its nature requires us to be reliable, which means that we have to eliminate a lot of the degrees of freedom. So most of the testing is associated with things like a single joint isometric test. The reason we do that is because it lets us get a consistent answer to the question we're asking. But if your belief system is built around this idea that, well, we care about movement and there's not an understanding of how the underlying constraints afford those movements, I think that's one of the biggest disconnects there. And then the second one is because of that, most clinics don't buy something that lets you test. And we have the old, you know, well, that's a good five out of five on on you there, right, for a manual muscle test. And so I think there's this belief that, one, manual muscle testing is good enough. And two, if we need something else, we should do something functional. Like, I want to see how the person does the task, which is important, but is probably not actually assessing what we care about. And I think that's the fundamental thing is lack of clarity on what strength is and then how we operationalize it, which means how do we actually test 
the construct that right strength. I, I think it's probably good to start with that idea of what is strength, right? It's like everybody knows, oh, that's a strong person. And in your head, you have an idea of what that person would be able to do. You'd be very surprised if the person you just saw lift the back end of the you know car would struggle to open the door or to unscrew a jar, right? Because strength to us is this idea that goes across boundaries. You're like, they could probably throw far. Think of George Washington and all of his, you know, the the legends around what he could do. That's somebody we think of as uh, a strong human. Those are the characteristics that strength has. However, when we test strength, we can't test that broad aspect. We're actually testing very specific components of it. And that whole analogy of the blind man and the elephant who one grabs the tail and is like, oh, an elephant's like a rope. And the other one's, hey, an elephant's like a wall because it touches the side. That's you can think of strength as the elephant. And our testing is us being the blind person. Which part of that construct are we actually touching? So I would say overall, that's where the failure to integrate it is, is a lack of understanding of what question we're asking a lack of understanding about how these things work together to create what we care about, um, and then some financial and resource uh, barriers and resources would also include just, you know, at the end of the day, PT schools aren't really doing this. So, right, yeah, and and I, you know, great answer. Uh, you know, to your first point on the emphasis on movement quality or the overemphasis that I think I would agree with completely. You know, I, I was always stunned when. I would hear people, especially the educators, but then, you know, everybody regurgitates some of the message on how isolated weakness was not relevant anymore. Right. And I remember at the beginning of this and I'm like, oh, no, this is this isn't going to go well, because, you know, we always say, like, you know, a weak muscle can't stabilize or can't, you know, function. You know, if, if you have a weakness in somewhere within the, the pattern, how are you going to have a good movement? Right. And uh, I, to me, I was always stunned that they said that. Right. It, have it, it, When you were going through that process, what did what did you think of during that? Like, were, were you scared of that? Were you worried that this was going to start this this momentum that we're seeing now? Could you see that? I mean, you know, I, I was young. Ninety eight probably is when I was really starting to get into. Uh, I mean, shoot, I, I think early Mid 90s to late 90s was me going to libraries and checking out books on strength training, right? So it's, there wasn't a whole lot of stuff there. Um, my undergrad started off as mechanical engineering, and I think that helped ground a lot of these things. Uh, but it wasn't until I started digging deeper into some of the, uh, motor control ideas and understanding the difference between goal directed movement and how those movements were accomplished, which again was benefited from some of the um, understanding of just robotics and uh, learning. And so I don't know that there was a point where I was like, oh no, because I was learning right alongside of a lot of these others. And I think we all have things we look back at and it's like, eh, you know, I've, I've told plenty of people don't do a leg extension early on because it's not as good as a squat. And, you know, in a lot of situations that might be the, the <laughs> case, but, um, I would say the concern started arising more and more as the confidence around all of these things started coming up. And then as, you know, especially finishing up undergrad, spending more time training people and then digging deeper into motor control, motor learning and starting to see the difference between what is a goal oriented movement and what is how is that movement being accomplished? Um I think that's the fundamental thing. So, yeah, sure. You don't have the strength to do the. Th you don't have the strength to do the task in the way that you want to. You'll find another way to do it. The task gets accomplished. And so if all we're focusing on is the task, you know, that's great. You, you accomplish the task. But I think that's where from a rehab perspective is our goal is really to start backing off of were you able to accomplish the task and see could you have accomplished that task in any other strategy right and so like the you know if your posterior cuff doesn't have the ability to decelerate that arm there you can still throw but then there's going to be an altered strategy for how that arm is being decelerated and that's where we start seeing all right you know that might increase some of the likelihood of issues that we have so um 
you know, I, I wish that I was like, oh, I I saw all of this forever ago. Uh, I, looking back, I'm like, I should have paid more attention to Tom Purvis, and I uh, should have paid more attention to like I read, um, was it the the paper on functional uh, way back when Mel Siff wrote it, and that was hugely influential when it came out for me. So it's been tangential, but you know, we're all learning. Uh, I'd say I have a better perspective now than I did 15 to 20 years ago. (laughs) Well, that's evolution though, right? And I think that when you, when you first learn a concept, you get really excited about that concept. And sometimes people go all in on that concept in sacrifice of some other key fundamental components that sometimes we lose uh, sight of. So, you know, I I think, you know, you know, well-intended and I think we're better for it as a profession. Right. I, I, I do think that, but you know, I don't know if it's a pendulum swinging or, or we got a little bit too focused on functional movement versus, um, you know, some of the bigger, broader concepts. But, um, you know, I, I, I like to see the pendulum swinging back maybe in understanding that there is some complexity to that and it's not quite so simple. So, uh, you know, I agree. I like that. Uh, you mentioned five out of five on a manual muscle test. What do you think? Is is that not good enough and, and why? I mean, it depends on what your question is. If we're screening someone for a neurological type thing, sure, maybe. If you're trying to identify whether or not someone has the ability to produce enough torque at the joint to accomplish a task or to be normalized side to side or to... Um, identify changes from training, then no, it isn't. And why is because it's not sensitive enough. Uh, So your ability to identify change kind of peaks once you can start moving against gravity. And from a gross screening of, huh, that felt off, um, you know, neurologically, we'll we'll get some of that stuff where you get some of that. All right, you know what, but what do we do with that? Well, then we go test it, right? That's, That's the thing is the screen is, uh, a lower extremity screen or upper extremity screen is not to identify whether or not someone's strong and put a label on that level of strength. It's to identify whether or not there's something occurring that is abnormal that we need to investigate further. Um, so fundamentally, if you care about something, you should measure it with a device that gives you units of the thing that you care about. And so pushing on someone and saying that feels Well, manual muscle testing is this whole complex interplay between your perception of how hard they were willing to push into the amount of force that they perceived you giving them. So it's an it's an interplay between two people's perception of each other. And then you are using your own perception of what occurred. And then you're assigning an arbitrary label to that. (laughs) That's pretty convoluted to then say, oh, this is strong or not. Right. We have a unit for force. It's very well established, right? Newtons. We know that Newtons is how we measure force. This is something we don't we don't get to just make up new things like we should do. Like you were saying earlier, uh, sure, pendulums swing back and forth. But if something's been around for a long, long, long time, you know, maybe don't try and reinvent. I <laughs> my biggest problem with pendulums is at the end of the day, you're still in the same place. You haven't moved forward. You're just going side to side over some local point. So. You look at stuff like Bohannon, you know, was writing about the publishing, what, in the 70s and 80s um, and well before that, like as soon as George Davies, some of his isokinetic, like there's good stuff being done. And then 150 years ago, there's questions, you know, Galton was looking into testing. This isn't a theory that we get to just go, oh, I have an opinion on this. It's a fairly well laid out and established how measurement occurs and how we measure things. And just because we happen to be in physical therapy or performance doesn't mean that we have to reinvent all of this. Like we still use the same process. We're just measuring something slightly different. We'll be back after a quick break. I hope you're enjoying the podcast episode. If you want to learn more from me, please check out my website, mikerinald.com. In addition to all my great articles, videos, and podcast episodes, I have a ton of online CEU courses, as well as my Inner Circle online mentorship and community. Be sure to subscribe to my free newsletter where I'm always sending you great info and exclusive perks and discounts. Just head to MikeRinald.com to get started. Thanks so much. 
and, and I like how you said it's a screen because you do need a quick screen to, to look at some things. Um, I think it's really funny though. I mean, I would never be content with, for example, like labeling somebody a four out of five, right? Because the spectrum from four to five is like a hundred point scale, we'll say. And, and if you're not five, I'm not happy, right? <laughs> that could be a large spectrum of, of improvement. You know, we, we always say, you know, a couple of studies we've done in-house that, you know, we've really never published, but it takes about a 15% strength deficit uh, on handheld dynamometer for the rotator cuff to get a four out of five, right? And we, we tell everybody mm. that because, you know, we, we, we did a study on that about probably about, you know, the subjects, probably about 150 subjects. So it was a large study to, to look at that number. And, you know, you had people that were 85% the strength of the other side. Um, and they were still five out of five. You had to be 84% mm-hmm. before he became a four out of five. And, and gosh, with the knee, right, that's probably 20, 25, 33%, you know, when, when you start to detect it. So it's just not sensitive enough, right? It's not the right kind of test. So, um, yeah, I like that. Yeah. I would say, I mean, the sec to add to that, the uncertainty around your test with a device sensitive enough. So the handheld dynamometer will always be better than you, right? Uh, If we look at the standard error of measure or whatever form of uh, variance you use, we're usually seeing somewhere from five, if you're doing a really good job, upwards of 10 to 20, 30% in some publications. So let's say that it's 15%. And the big thing here is this is a continuous variable. So it's not like they were 85, you didn't notice it, and they were 84, you noticed it. It's They become more and more noticeable, right, as you go down. So let's say right. that's a 10-point curve where you're starting to be confident that you're going to be, right? So you'll pick up something, the probability as you drop below 85 starts going up that you're going to notice this. And then you add 10%, just to be optimistic here, right, uh, 10% error of uncertainty. Now you have this potentially 65 to 80 percent range or even larger before you're starting to notice that and then to your point you look at the leg and most of the time with the leg you're measuring how much force it takes to push you over not how much torque their knee is capable of generating exactly yeah well said yeah and and you know to me i think that's one of the things that people don't understand with some of these things and and maybe this is why we have such persistence and weakness with a lot of our rehabs and issues with people um you know restoring strength um is we're not quantifying it well we're not doing a good enough job so uh you mentioned a handheld dynamometer which obviously i'm fond of and something that we use all the time as well um is that the premier way? I mean, I know there's a spectrum of, we'll call them financial, maybe uh, range of devices, but what would, what would you say the best items you can do if you want to get your clinic started with measuring strength? Where where would you where would you start if your budget was unlimited? And what would you do if you're like most clinics and you don't have that un- unlimited budget? Yeah. So with an unlimited budget or not unlimited, but a budget that can be stretched, um, <laughs> uh, an isokinetic dynamometer and a good handheld dynamometer that can be push and pull, as well as a set of force plates is probably one of the best. Like if you're going to look into this, that right. sequence will get you where you need to be. Um, the nice thing is it's becoming cheaper and cheaper to get into that. So instead of $150,000, you can probably get into all of that for around 50 grand. Right. Um, the key though, I think there's this, the single biggest thing is to understand that the process is what matters more than the device. Your device has to have the ability to consistently give you the same number when the same amount of force is applied to it. Beyond that, it's up to you. And I think that's the big problem is people, you know, you open your box with your new dynamometer and you pull out your handheld dynamometer and then there's a little bottle of reliability that you squirt on it and a little bottle of of validity (laughs) that you squirt on it. And now, you know, that trap, that's not how this works, right? And so when people will ask, well, has that dynamometer been validated? Well, that's not how this really works, right? This is a scale. It's, It's just a strain gauge. Um, it's a fancy bathroom scale, basically, right, for the exactly. force plates. <laughs> what it does is it tells you a measure with some amount of variance of how much force it was subjected to. That's all it does. 
what that force is, is up to how you subjected the force to it. And this is where we start making our biggest issues is we believe that because we had a dynamometer in our hand and we cared about something, that the dynamometer told us what we cared about. And the example I usually use is if you step on a scale to see how much you weigh, what you care about is your weight. What the scale tells you is how much force it was subjected to. Now, if somebody else puts their toe on the back and adds a little bit of force, you're like, oh, no, I gained five pounds. It's not the scale's fault. That was an error in how you asked the question. You believed you were asking how much you weighed. What you actually asked was how much mass is on the scale. That's the same thing when it comes to dynamometry. So you set someone up. You're like, hey, I want to know how much knee extension torque this person's capable of producing. And then you set up in front of them and you hold down and they start pushing. You start losing your balance, but you feel like you're still kind of there. Their butt comes up a little bit and you're like, oh, wow, look, you got 45 pounds. You did not measure what their knee was capable of. Right. So these, the ceiling is always going to be whatever the weakest, whatever breaks first. And so your your goal here, the most important thing, create the test in the way that everything else supersedes the ability of that joint to produce force so much that the force at the joint is always the limiting factor. Right. I mean, and, you know, testing shoulders like I've I think the strongest guy I remember testing was right around 89, 92 pounds external rotation did not exercise at all. He just uh, was a jujitsu guy blew me away. I was not ready for it. He pushed me over. Now, the first <laughs> measure that I got was about 45 pounds. Why was that? Well, he felt me starting to get pushed and stopped pushing harder. Right, so if right. I had just, okay, 45, hey, you know what? That's not bad, right? If I'm just thinking, is that, sure, you don't have a weakness issue. Well, then I reset. And then we got 80. And I was like, oh, damn, that's all right. And then we go to the other side that I had, um, that was the uninjured side, or I'm sorry, uh, we, we started on the uninjured side. He got 90 something. And then we go over there and we're like 70, something like that. I'm like, all right, well, you do have a deficit. 70 is very, very strong, right? So if you're ceiling, though, if it took 40 pounds to push me over and I tested both sides, yes, there's an asymmetry, but it's well <laughs> right. above what my stability would have been. And so I would have walked away saying, you don't have an asymmetry. Now, whether or not that asymmetry matters is a whole other discussion. My job when I'm testing is to identify what's going on there and make sure that the question I care about is the question I'm asking. So to circle back, without that, it doesn't matter what you buy. If, you're, if your setup is not appropriate, then it doesn't matter. Beyond that, then just get a device that is consistently able to give you that. Honestly, the Tindec, and I have no financial association with any of these because I don't want it. Um, Tindec for about 150 bucks. Uh, gives you 150 kilograms. The app interface is phenomenal. You can do isometric programming with it. You can set it up where they're doing holds. I love it. I use it all the time. Um, I've everybody that has bought a crane scale and then bought this is like, oh, dude, I should have never bought the crane scale. Like it's <laughs> right. 50 bucks difference <laughs> or so, and such a massive difference between the two that it's not even it's not even in the same conversation. So I typically say from a strain scale perspective, if you have to, maybe, but I have some concerns. It's not designed to get a peak force with a moving uh, type thing. It's a static load scale. Most of the crane scales that have a hold function, there is a lag. And so if you're not getting a peak and holding the peak long enough, it will miss the peak. So you have some issues with potentially getting that. Yeah, that's um, bad. Yeah. And then beyond that, the uh, the Mark 10 is usually the one that... Uh, so JLW modified the Mark 10 to let you do push and pull. That's about 900 bucks. Um, it's the one that I use the most. I, I Again, I worked with them to help uh, design this to make it feasible for clinicians. We went through a few iterations. I like it. Well, I think Rob Whitley's the one who had originally told me a number of years back that they use the Mark 10 because it's one of the most robust, doesn't really break on them. And 500 pound force push pull, a few hundred bucks less than Lafayette or the, um, uh, what's the other... Mark Pro or JTEC, which are all phenomenal. And if you can get them, the biggest problem with most of those is they are push only. 
So when it comes right. to something like the knee, you're starting to, you can do it, but it's a little bit more complicated. So Yeah, I, I would agree. And I would say, you know, we've traditionally used the push one because, you know, we've been doing it for 25 years or something. That's the push ones are available. So the Lafayette's one of the more common ones, the Microfet, uh, I think are the, probably the two more common ones. Um, they're always push base and we've modified things like knee extension, for example, to be push base. But again, you, you have to wonder if the person's just not producing force because they don't like the setup. It's uncomfortable. They don't like the strap and like the positioning of it. So it's not a true, uh, force. So if you are in the market, I, I, I just really want to emphasize what Scott just said right there, because, um, the ability to push and pull, I do think is 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 very important and there's so many good options out there nowadays that that there's no reason not to right is that is that Correct. a good way of saying it so yeah. yeah and it's it's awesome to see every year there's four or five new ones coming on the market and <laughs> right. it's great because the prices are plummeting and right. that's what we want to see as you know as users give right. me all the options um right and let me decide. I, and I would probably say too, like I've evaluated quite a few because, um, you know, people will send them to me to say like, Hey, what do you think mm -hmm. is a new device? And I will say that some of the cheaper ones I've been very unimpressed with. Um, and we'll, we'll leave it at that. So what I would just suggest is rather, we're not going to call that out or anything, but I, I would just say is look, Scott's vetted these because he's the, uh, he's the handheld dynamometer guru right now. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Scott's vetted these, we've vetted these, you know, so just stick to the ones that, you know, your peers that you really appreciate the experts out there are recommending because I, I think that's, um, I think that's that, that's a smart way to learn from our mistakes. I think, um, but but definitely go push pull. Um, I'll be honest with you, Scott. I haven't had uh, isokinetic machine in um, I guess it's been almost like fifteen years now, and I don't think I miss it. Right? I mean, and heck, hmm. is is that a short sighted comment? Maybe, but. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, for the price, for the size, for the, you know, for the, you know, the extensive setup and time, are we, are, are, have we gone too far away from that? And do you think we're missing out that we're getting away from isokinetics or, or do you think, think it's okay to just go handheld dynamometry? Well, it goes back to that analogy of the elephant, right? So the handheld dynamometer always brings you up to the side of the elephant and you're always touching that. So you, good, you, good you know what you're getting as long as, as long as you're aware of the fact that strength, this higher order construct is not defined by isometric force production at a single joint angle. That is just a component of it. It's a proxy for strength. It gives us an indication, but the further you get away from it, the more we uh, might see. Then I think you're okay. Like the, we're we're talking here bare minimum, right? We're saying at least start with something that we know, and it probably most bang for your buck isometric. Isokinetic gives us the ability to examine multiple things across multiple domains. We can we can mess up and start like I I don't see much value in measuring at some of these really high velocities. I think uh, rate of force potentially isometrically would give us a little bit more as opposed to you know three hundred. 600 degrees per second like some of those things as we start getting away from it i don't know that we're doing as it or it's not that it's bad it's just that the information doesn't tell us much more right 60 degrees per second with the knee probably tells me about as much as i need i don't need to right. keep going you can get more from it and if you have the luxury of doing so where i start finding value is the ability to test eccentric strength and start looking at endurance so for, for instance my shoulder protocol looked at isometric um and then i also looked at eccentric strength tests and then i would do a 20 rep test at 90 degrees per second and basically push push the whole time so con eccentric and then if i wanted to internal rotation the same and what i would do is comparison of total work side to side um i don't, I don't know i'd be interested in your thoughts on this but i find that the shoulder a lot of times i'll get a good peak but the endurance is a massive issue Right. And that's where, like, just because you're getting that peak does not mean that you're having this. And I've worked with a lot of tennis players, not as much baseball, but that was a fairly common thing that I would see is those who were sort of having issues and struggling, especially as the matches went on, endurance became this big deficit that we right. would uh, tend yeah. to see. So you can test that alternatively. And I like uh, Mike Mullaney's 
9090 setup where you hold 25% of peak and you go for time works right. really well on the 10 deck. Um, right. But those are the things that I, the isokinetic dynamometer absolutely gives you the ability to do more and it has a built in system for stabilization. So a lot of the backend, um, modifications you have to do to make it work in your clinic do work well. Uh, it does a very good job at what it does. I think there's either an over or an under emphasis on what it does. Right, right. And and yeah, and, and to go back to your endurance thing just real quick, what I've done with a handheld dynamometer, I do agree with uh, Mike Mullaney too with uh, the endurance component of it. For me, what I've done is I do serial testing with minimal breaks. Um, and what you'll find is, is some of the guys that are strong and stable and feel good and not having any, any issues, they'll be fairly consistent with their numbers rep to rep, but somebody that's struggling a little bit, they may be, they may have a good peak force for a second or, or maybe even just one rep. But if you do three, four, five, just real quick, I don't take minimum breaks. I'm not doing a research study, right? I'm not trying to like make sure they've fully recovered. You actually see that that endurance becomes a little bit more of an issue and, and, and that is important. So, um, yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. And, and, you know, going to your point too, again, between isokinetic and isometric and stuff. And again, it's, I think it's, it's a shame if you're doing nothing, right? I think we can both agree to that, right? You should be doing something. And then it's like, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, a, a, a Corolla versus like a Lamborghini, right? Like, you know, they, they both drive you to work, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> but it, it, it's about how, how many other things can you do with it? And I think that goes back to your population, the people you work with, their goals, their objectives, and just really how fine tuned, like measuring different measurements, if you're not going to program them differently based on that is just a waste of time, right? So yep. it's all how you use it. Yep. Never, never take a measurement that is not going to change what you're going to do. However, be sure that you ignoring the measurement is not incorrect, right? So just because <laughs> right, you right. wouldn't change what you did doesn't mean that you're right in that circumstance. Right. <laughs> um, I, I would say with the serial to touch on that, Serial testing absolutely will reveal it. The main reason why I will do an endurance test, whether it's isometric time to loss of uh, strength or position, is just to quantify it, right? So now I can, when I retest, I can identify if I intended to improve endurance, did their endurance improve? Right. Whereas the serial measures, which I've done, and absolutely you will pick that up, that's a lot harder to then go and say, You're, you've improved right. your endurance, Right. Because, like you said, it's more of a screen as opposed to a test that identifies right. something that I can refer back to. I, and I love it, though, because what you just said was a, was was the main point again is is you, you want to test things that you want to quantify so you can document progress and you can assess not only their improvement, but how how accurate was your programming? Right. How 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 well yes. did you do at actually improving the metric that you just tested? And and man, that's that's, that's huge. That's everything. It's more, it is so important. And this is where testing, I think, probably has the biggest benefit. I, I I'm. The, the one-off testing at the end to say, hey, you're ready to be cleared is probably less important in my mind than the serial testing to audit your process. Right. If you have decided that an increase in force production capability matters, right? you need to identify whether or not you increase force production capabilities. Right. Because unless you expose yourself to the likelihood that, or the unless you expose yourself to whether or not you've been wrong. You're insulated from the effects of everything that you've done, and you can confidently walk forward in ignorance. But the key is not only, yes, we need feedback, but this goes back to the uh, manual muscle testing. Feedback that does not orient us to reality is probably more dangerous because now we have a mistaken belief that the information we're getting is telling us what's going on. So, yes, we need feedback because that is vitally important, but also. We need to make sure that the feedback we're getting is representative of the reality that we are um, engaged in and interacting and with. If you're waiting to strength test somebody for the first time at their nine month return to sport assessment period, then you've you've missed some golden opportunities because, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times that 
we get somebody into a position where we think they're going to succeed and for whatever reason they don't. And if we don't document a plateau in their progress by looking at these variables, then we miss that chance to pivot and we miss that chance to maybe take a step back and say, what's going on? And be like, you know what? Your swelling in your knee has persisted a little bit longer. Maybe we, maybe that is now inhibiting our strength gains and maybe we need to take a step back off some of our agility work and focus on that. I mean, it's just, it's, it's again, it's, it's just really emphasizing that importance that not only do you need to be measuring strength, but you have to be using it in a way that you can apply it to what the person is doing each and every day in front of you or what are we doing, right? Awesome. All right. So I think we both agree a handheld dynamometer is cool. We could do a whole other uh, podcast on force plates because you want to talk about opening up a bee's nest of um, <laughs> uh, of metrics that are not relevant, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, uh, yep. Force plates are amazing. And maybe we will we, we will get back on and d- do a podcast on that in the future. But but let's stick with handheld dynamometry because I, t- I feel like that is our low-hanging fruit for most clinicians right here. Um, sure. I always tell people that it's more art than science and there is a huge learning curve behind how you perform handheld dynamometry because not only do you have to figure out how to set up the patient for example but you have to figure out how to set up yourself and you have to figure out how to stabilize and to make sure that other joints aren't interacting that they're not compensating that you're motivating them enough that you're you know there's there's so many things that you can do wrong to get inconsistent results and it's funny, sometimes you see people like, you know, for example, young clinicians that are starting handheld dynamometry, they'll take the mean of like three reps and just make up numbers, but it's like 25, 45, 42. And you're like, well, why'd you take the mean of that 25? That was clearly a bad rep, right? Um, you know, because it's very easy to do handheld dynamometry poorly. So yes. w- w- let's let's hit on that eh? because you talked about this. I saw our presentation years over the summer. I think it was last year. Oh, the time is flying by with COVID, so I don't remember. But uh, <laughs> you, you talked about that. I, I mean, you and I were were chatting online because I was doing a presentation for my inner circle on the same thing as how to like maximize your outcomes and your reliability. Yeah. But what are some of your tips for somebody to get the to, uh, the most reliable and accurate data as possible? from a handheld dynamometer. Yeah. Um, so I will slightly um, disagree, I guess, um, mostly because <laughs> I don't like the terminology of art and science. I would not say it's more art than science. I would say it is 100% science. However, you need to explore the optimal process for your setting. Right. Um, and so to with a nod to the problem I have with a lot of times we start thinking art means that you can interpret this and you can apply your own perception of things to it. You don't get to <laughs> no <laughs> apply your perception. What you Zero. get to do is explore. Exactly. You get to explore the constraints of your setting and identify the process that works best within it. But it's not like you can bring your own worldview to this. Force is force. It's a pretty fundamental uh, concept, and it's <laughs> right. your ability to ask the question. Um, so the single biggest issue with handheld dynamometer testing is the fact that there are humans involved. So the more you can eliminate your ability to have an opinion, the better things are. The more you can abiliate, uh, eliminate your ability to influence things, the better things are. And so the process that is consistent And so if you're thinking of a checklist, first thing is patient is stabilized. And when I say stabilized to the point, I usually tell people two to three times the amount of force you expect them to produce is probably the amount of force that you should have them stabilized for. This is where some of the really cool testing setups that you'll see, like uh, standing, you know, uh, external rotation or whatever uh, with the dynamometer into the wall. That looks awesome, but your base of support is very narrow because your right. feet are small. Your lever arm is massive because it's your height. So most of the time with something like that, you're measuring how much force it takes to move your center of gravity outside of your base of support. You're not measuring the shoulder. Right. So that's that's really the key. Stabilization of the patient. Second step is stabilization of the device. So if the individual is still you want all of the torque uh, that is being produced at the joint you're testing 
to go directly through that device because that's what we're trying to measure. You do not want torque being generated from other aspects being able to go through the device. So this is where line of pull starts being, what is the motion you're trying to test? Draw a 90 degree angle to that. That's the line of force that needs to go through. So then fixation of the device becomes key. Usually what I tell people is beyond about, I don't know, 50, 60 pounds, it should probably be fixated. 50, 60 pounds, if you're a bigger human, you might be able to do so. Like even when I'm testing uh, shoulder external rotation, I have the device braced up against my hip. I'm in a wide stance. I have their arms stabilized underneath my other hand and they're pushing, right? Because I want there to be no doubt, no hesitation. That story I told about the guy earlier, I was set up, but it wasn't for 80 pounds. It wasn't for 90 pounds, right? So <laughs> right. that is, and that will happen. But the key is like, to your point, Mike, if you get that 25 and then you get the 40, all right, you now have information. Your first test was not giving you a measure of force. Your first test just told you your setup was incorrect. Right? <laughs> well said, well said. So then it becomes this idea of stabilization around a minimum. And so, or about around a, um, uh, a more accurate measurement. Typically, the observed measurement is equal to the true measurement plus the error. And that's, there's nothing we can do about, because all we see is the observed. So our goal is to standardize the error. It, it, we're never going to eliminate it. We want it to be as small as possible, but even more importantly, that it's stable. So that's the same thing. And that's why all this process matters. But then to self-audit yourself as you're going through this, if you look at it from the standpoint of what I'll usually do is you have to have two to three measures within 10% of each other and then take the peak. Now, you can average if you want. There's there's arguments for both peak or average. I find peak the most clinically useful. Um, it's the easiest one to sort of calculate and talk. And then it also holds you a little bit honest the next time you're testing yeah, to where they have to actually beat that. But you don't just get to choose a peak because you might get an error on the high end. You might get 42, 45, 71. For you sure. don't get to choose 71. You have to do another <laughs> test. Right. So Right. That's that's those are the two key things. Usually two to three tests within 10 percent take the highest one and that will help regulate. Right. And then the last component is your warm up and your queuing. You have to queue the same way. You have to warm up the same way. You don't get to be extra excited for one person and then not say <laughs> anything you do. You want to encourage them to produce the maximum because that's the whole point of this test. It's a maximal test. So there has to be an element of queuing. You have to be a little bit loud. You have to. But terminology is always has to be the same. So my typical thing for a peak force is I'm telling the patient, all right, we're going to do. We go through the motion that they're going to do. You're going to push into this. As hard as you can, what we're going to do, it's not fast. You're going to build up to a peak force somewhere around one to two seconds, and then you're going to hold till I say stop. Does that make sense? Yep. All right. We're going to do our acclimation, and then we'll do 50%, 75%, about 90%. And these very little rest in between, right? 5, 10, reset, basically. This is just to get them acclimated, and it's also my chance to see if my setup breaks. So if we're at 90% and I'm getting pushed over, I have the opportunity to restabilize things before I'm taking those tests. So just because it, this isn't the idea of, you know, jumping off a cliff and now that you've started the testing, you can't modify anything. <laughs> Adjust based off of the feedback right. that you're uh, getting. So I hate to say the it, then, Scott, though, but you know what I think that is? That's the art of it. I hate to say it. That's the art to realize that's, that. <laughs> that's, that's process. That's process. The, the, the art of it is to realize that, you know, that that 70 that I got probably wasn't valid. Right. There's a little judgment involved with that. But no, I, I I'm teasing you. I, 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 <laughs> well, I agree. I'll, I'll disagree because the uh, two two within 10 percent tells you that so there's no art there that's true that's that true. is you're not allowed to again i i get it and there is an element of you need to understand the question that you're asking and if we want to call right. that art that's fine but it has to be based off of an understanding of the fundamental principles yeah. we don't get to reinvent newton's laws here like there's just things that happen. I don't know. On Twitter, you can do anything nowadays. I think you might That's be able to true. do it. <laughs> now right, that so Elon's here. So here yeah, right? So here's a big one for you. Make test or break test? What do you think? 
Oh, I'm a make test person. Um, and here's why it's more easily reproduced. I think eccentric strength is valuable. If I have an isokinetic device, I'll do it uh, at the shoulder, at the hamstrings. I frequently test a brake test as well. Um, but I am I am making my make test as my foundational test just because of the reliability component. I like it. And, and it's funny. It's not every day that Scott DMs me and asks me a question, but you did ask me that question. And I, I, and you know, you didn't, you didn't tell me what you do first. And I said the same thing. And I, uh, I, I, I confirmed your bias. I think that was fantastic. Yeah, there, there we go. Yeah. I know Mulaney and I have discussed it because he's a, he's a brake test. And I, I there's yep. a good argument for the brake. The problem with brake is it's only available in a few tests for you. Exactly. Right? You have to be significantly stronger than the other individual. Right. Um, it's not something that every clinician can do for everyone because of just anthropometrics and stuff. Um, I find it very meaningful to test, but it's it's an and my foundational right. test right. is make. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, you get into maybe the clinical implications. I mean, are, are we getting plenty of clinical implications that at trying to document somebody's makeable peak force. Yeah, I, th I think we're doing, I think we're doing pretty good with that. Um, yeah. All right. One last question I have for you. We talked a lot about force, right? We didn't talk about, you know, there's, there's many other things we can talk about, but what about rate of force development? And you mentioned peak and I agree with you, peak's important, but what about the ability to develop that peak quickly? How important is that to you? And how accurate do you think a handheld diameter is in measuring that? Yeah, that's the, everybody wants rate. Um, <laughs> how important is rate? One of the most important things. Now, how important is it that you measure it? Eh, uh, it it's, probab it's probably valuable. It's just all of these things that we were discussing about the complications around testing peak force are exacerbated when it comes to rate. So... The easiest way to think of rate is rate is what happens when you start at no force and start producing force moving towards a peak. And because we happen to work, uh, exist in a temporal space, time passes. And so you have to go from nothing to peak. Rate is how fast you got there. Now, we can look at rate as that definition, which is overall the average rate. Or we can start taking time epochs. So let's say every quarter second, what is the increase in force during that time? So what is the rate, the slope of the line, if we're drawing this force time curve? That Those time epochs seem to be more valuable. Now then we start looking at different time demands. So the first 100 milliseconds is influenced by things differently than the next 100 milliseconds, which is different, influenced by things differently than the next 100 milliseconds. You will also find that the closer you get to your peak, the slower the rate is, right? Because initially, you can have very, very significant uh, rate of strength or force increase. Well, it makes sense, right? You started from zero, and you've got a whole host of force still to produce. As you get closer and closer, you're gonna your rate's going to slow. And if you draw that line, you'll see it. If you just put a pencil or something parallel to the line throughout... There's a lot of different ways to measure this. Um, clinically, I think Dan Cobian's convinced me that the um, taking 20 to 80% of peak and getting the average slope within there clinically is meaningful uh, for, for a number of reasons. But one of the best ones is it's a much more stable measure that cuts off the beginning and the end, which is usually where you see the biggest changes. So the biggest differences, remember that initial rate's really high. That last bit of rate's really low. Um, if you cut that 20% off of uh, both ends, now you have an average that's over the duration of uh, the product. So that increase. The cool thing though, is you probably don't need sampling at as high of a rate if you're doing it that way, because you're measuring across a longer time span. So it, Solves the problem of the, you know, when people talk about time to peak force as a proxy for rate, that's a bad proxy. It doesn't tell you anything about it. you could have gone really, really far and then just gone really slow for part of it. Right. So that doesn't give us much. But the slope of the line between that 20 and 80 percent 
seems to be meaningful. Um, his work and uh, uh, blanking on there's a paper out on this as well where they take in um, for typically a thousand, two thousand or more um, hertz is what it's sampled at. And that's usually the frequency that we need to identify this. And this just goes into some basic um, sampling type uh, signal processing. You need to be sampling at a rate that's about twice as fast as what the process is occurring at in order to capture what's happening. But if you're taking that average, they've been able to downsample to around 100 hertz and find like, uh, I believe it was within about four or four and a half percent. If you look at the Bland-Altman um, plot of the limits of agreement. So pretty, pretty good um, from that 1,000, 2,000 to the 100. With that being said, I think that a device that samples at least at 100 with a processor that is able to do that, and this is actually Tindek is working on that. Um, one of the things I've had conversations with him about is he's he's updating his rate of force because currently it's an instantaneous peak, which I don't find that valuable, Right, but he's changing it over to that 20 to 80%. That'd Which I think, yeah, yeah. My my concern with this is people go, yeet, rate of force, yay. Right. And all the stuff we've just been discussing about becomes <laughs> right. so much more important. So the the more variable the measure, the more precise you have to be. So if you're not stable with your peak, don't worry about rate. If you don't have the ability to measure weight, rate, don't sweat it. Pretty much everybody needs to work on rate, and you can program that in, and right. then just keep checking your peak, right? Yeah, so good, good it, point. It's Why doable. not just do it anyway, right? Hey, because that's great. Yeah, correct. So rate with caveats <laughs> has benefit um, right. with a lot of isometric tests. If you're sampling at a higher rate and you have access to something like uh, Vout, uh, for instance. I really like taking force at a time point as a proxy for rate. So 250 milliseconds in, like let's say we're doing the ash test. I'll usually look at peak force and then I'll look at force at 250 milliseconds in. And that's a good proxy measure for rate. Gives you an idea of where they are. Um, that I would say that uh, also within like isometric mid-type pool, any isometric test, if you can do that, However, it needs to be sampling at a rate sufficient. So 100 hertz probably isn't going to do that because you're going to see mm -hmm. all sorts of misses within there. Um, but if you do have something like the Force Decks or uh, Hawken Dynamics or any of the other ones out there that lets you look at those two, I, I find that works as well. Yeah, that's fantastic. And, and you know, I, I if you've listened this far into the podcast, I, I hope that means that you're super interested in the complexity of all this, because I feel like Scott and I, uh, you know, we enjoy geeking out about this. So I, I think it's it's this is a fun conversation for us. Um, if you're an advanced uh, clinician and you've been doing this and you're trying to get a greater understanding, I think we probably just got the tip of the iceberg in this episode, right, with with some of this information. But I also don't want the person that isn't doing any quantification of strength testing to be kind of like inundated with all this information and just and feel overwhelmed with it, just get a handheld datamometer, get one that does push and pull, right? And and just start measuring peak force and be as consistent with it as you can. You're going to screw up. It's not going to be great for months, maybe, but it's a start of the process. And over time, you'll continue to refine your skills and, you know, seek out mentorship with people that are doing it more. And I think it would get better. I don't want you to be scared to get started just because Scott and I used a lot of complex, you know, uh, you know, advanced scenarios for you here. It, you know, I, I just I wanted to make sure people feel that way. But Scott, yeah, any additional thoughts? Just, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to add, even if. Like the tin deck is a pool only, 150 bucks. If you're gonna right. just get one, get a pool only. You can do the shoulder with pool only. Right. Um, typically, what I'll do is a belt around the waist, fixate the device in front of you, and then your stance sets you up. So instead of pushing, you're pulling. Force right. measurement doesn't matter whether it's push or pull. The reason right. why we do push versus pull is because of body anthropometrics and all. So yeah, right. it's very easy to enter in. Uh, the Tindec was recently looked at as its ability to measure what it says it measures. 
um, against some of the alternative devices that have more plastic covers, and Tintec was phenomenal. And this was a mechanical engineering-based type study where they just applied appropriate force to it and said, does it measure what it measures? And does that change as we go from the lower end to the higher end? So for 150 bucks, you can test anything you want to. You got a great little app that lets you also program. Like I'll have patients come in. It's it's so easy to your point that patients will come in. I clip them in. They pull it up on their app and then they know <laughs> just to watch. Like yeah. we have their benchmarks and they're doing their holds and all there. So it's absolutely not a high barrier to entry. If you've learned how to uh, manual muscle test, you have a good idea of some of the setup. I mean, you think back to your manual training, position of uh, therapist, position of patient, <laughs> direction right. of force, line of all those things are <laughs> the, the whole same textbook. for this. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Exactly. So you're, you're already trained how to do it. You just have to realize that those principles need to be applied here. That's awesome. And as you get better and you get more comfortable and you want to upgrade your tech or you want to start looking at multiple things or you want to add your tech stack and add force plates and stuff like that, then more power to you. But don't don't stop the process of getting started because of, of the overwhelm with how deep you can go or how many metrics you can look at. Just get started. Right. <laughs> yeah. A few good mm -hmm. metrics applied well will always trump multiple metrics. Love Think it. of a guy who trains in Taekwondo for one year versus a guy who trains in boxing for one year. Boxers usually going to win because right. they're much <laughs> more qualified to use the tools at their disposal. I love it. Awesome. Scott, good stuff. Um, I like to end with a little high five segment, five quick questions that get into your mindset a little bit, because to be honest with you, I do want to know your answers because I care, but I also want to show all the listeners that, you know, people like yourself have a growth mindset and, you know, you're always evolving and stuff like that. So I, I love to kind of hear examples of that. So first question, what are you currently working on for your own professional development? Yeah, um, always a number of things, right? I usually buy about three books for every one that I finish, and uh, <laughs> I start probably four for every one that I uh, finish. Um, I'm currently also pursuing a PhD, so that kind of takes a big component of my time. A lot of reading around psychometrics, uh, quantitative methodology, Bayesian analysis as far as that end of things, um, always spending time from a biomechanics perspective, um, and then at the end of the day, I'm still a little bit of a meathead. So strength and conditioning type stuff, I, I have a, that's, that's my biggest interest. That's what I've spent the most time on is uh, that. So um, table of contents of a number of journals sent to uh, my email. That's one of the biggest things for looking at it. And then ResearchGate is actually a great place that'll suggest things. So I'm yeah. skimming across those domains, but more of the deep dive is um, some of the fundamental stuff around it, more specific to the educational side. I like that. Keep your eye on what may be coming out because you never know what you might want to shift your, your, your focus towards, but you know, always have something in queue that you're learning. And, and I, I think that's, that's important. Um, second question, what's one thing you've recently evolved your thoughts on? Oh man. Um, <laughs> I, like I, I actually, I have two very specific ones. The first one is neurocognitive training. Um, and the reason I've changed my thoughts is due to discussions with uh, Dusty Grooms and Meredith Chapu um, and a very good clarification on their part of the difference between how it's being presented writ large versus the argument being made. And I think there there is value there. If you think of the neurocognitive component as a modifiable physical constraint, the same as you would train anything else, makes a lot of sense. Um, and then you think of the idea, well, just because people doing strength training does not, like a lot of people do strength training poorly, it doesn't mean that strength isn't valuable. Just because a lot of people are doing neurocognitive flashy stuff doesn't mean that the fundamental underlying principle. So that is something that um, I wouldn't say I was skeptical. I was just cons I was concerned about a lot of glaring interactions or um, places where what was being presented missed sort of fundamental aspects of motor control and learning, just basic good programming. Talking to both of them, they're like, yep, we have the same concerns. Here's actually what we're trying to do and say. And um, 
uh, so yeah, talking to them, reading the papers uh, more specifically, I think that that would be the big one. And then the second one, effort as an anchor uh, and rep zones. Um, so using effort instead of percentage of rep max and the idea that, you know, probably rep zones probably don't matter at all from a hypertrophy perspective, um, hmm. as opposed to believing more, you know, that there's these zones that are better for hypertrophy i think now i would i would agree more with uh you know james fisher and uh, brad schoenfeld's sort of current work where they're saying yeah you know looking back at this the the rep zones that we've traditionally thought of as best for this are just the ones that are easier as humans to do like it's miserable to do 30 reps of something yes but eight <laughs> right. to 12 reps seems to work pretty well. And since all of it works okay, you know, from an efficiency trade-off perspective, um, and the training to failure within that is, I, I think, the, the more I dig into it, the more I'm like, you know, with unless you have a reason not to, using effort as your anchor, like, I, I, I was kicking and screaming for a while, but I can't come up with a good argument not to. It seems to be the way to do it. And not everybody, like you have a good training age, right? That's something you've always, you've done for, you know, your, your life. But a lot of people don't understand intent. They don't understand yes. working to failure. And they wonder why they stall in their progress when they're never really pushing themselves. Yep. And that's awesome. where that anchoring to failure is just, you have to do it. Show right. them where they think they are compared to where they are. So yeah, right. those are probably the two biggest ones that have uh, been the most grumpy changing on just because of years of opinions. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Um, what's one big piece of advice that you like to give to students and early career professionals? Absolutely. Like everybody says, reach out, et cetera, et cetera. That's all important. But do back-end work so that when you reach out, you have demonstrated that you understand what the person you're reaching out to does you understand their operational tempo of what they do. So not reaching out to someone in the NBA during playoffs, right? Not know what they do, know when they do it, be considerate of it and come to them demonstrating that you've put in work so that the question you're asking or the comment that you're making is one that that person will look at and say, okay, I understand that they have paid attention to what I've done. They have an understanding to this point, and the clarification here is such that I can I know what they understand. That that's probably the single do some work. Not that, and then last I guess yeah, do the work, but then show up when you say you're going to show up. Like if you volunteer <laughs> for something, do it. Like right. that, that is the most simple thing, but. It's it's amazing how rarely that happens. <laughs> so take take everybody listening. Remember these things because Scott didn't just make those things up. This he's talking from experience. Like these are what people DM us, right? We get these crazy like messages that that make no sense. I love when people ask like, "Hey Mike, where are you located?" I'm like, "That's one of the most easiest things for you to find yourself. Don't ask me that." <laughs> right? Like just <laughs> Right. And it's it's not intended to be disrespectful i get that sometimes right. it, i get it but if you're looking to maximize the odds and just exactly. consider all the things that you do every day and then add on to that having people reach out to you and asking questions like most of the videos that i put up on instagram most of the blog posts and a lot of the papers i've written are be so that i can send a link to people Right. Instead of rewriting the same thing. I, I, that's, that's the whole point of my website for 15 years. It was to, to answer questions people are asking me. So, and our whole other podcast, right? I mean, that's why we do it. So um, that's awesome. Awesome. Well, wh what's coming up next for you? What can we expect next from Scott? Anything in the works? Um, I mean, the coolest thing I think that I'm kind of working on right now that, or the thing that I'm the most excited about is, um, the sports performance enhancement SIG, I am pulling together, and this has been the last three years was creating content. And what we're working on is pulling that into a coherent curriculum so that physical therapists interested in performance have a place where they can go that has a series of lectures 
uh, on the topics with links to relevant inf- so you can go as deep as you want to. Um, the goal for this is really for especially students who want to do a study group because they're not feeling that their school is covering this, which understandably, there's a lot to teach in school. Performance is relatively niche. Um, residents and uh, fellows who are interested in having sort of a comprehensive uh, thing. And then any professional who just sort of wants to go through it, having a place to start. This is not the end point, um, but I think it will be a valuable look at the question from the viewpoint of a lot of really great people in the field um, that's going to be freely available to members. So, yeah, that's exciting. I look forward to that. Yeah, yeah. that'd be great. And then last, where where can people find out more about you? Like you've mentioned Instagram. Where, Where are the places that you like to hang out and interact with people? Yeah, so Twitter is usually where I have conversations. Um, Instagram is, I mean, DMs are now more common than anything else, right? So Instagram, DM, and Twitter are two that I probably interact with people the most. But Twitter, as far as if you're more of a conversation thing, Twitter works a lot better for that. Instagram is more content, like videos of all the different tests and setups and discussions that we've had. It's all on there. Um I have a website, physiopraxis.co, which I actually just woke up to notification that one of my uh, certificates expired, so I have to fix that. Uh, <laughs> the, the fun um, part of the job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, just all the back-end nonsense. Um, a research gate, if you're interested, like all of the stuff that I publish is available there uh, pretty much. I believe it's all free. Um, available except for one or two like book chapters and all that I'm not allowed to share on there. Right. Um, and then you know, podcasts like this one, yeah, it's great, that's awesome. And just so people know, in case they don't want to click on the show notes, but what's your Twitter and what's your Instagram handles? Oh, yeah, so um, Twitter is SCOTMORRSN. If you put that into Instagram, you'll come to my fly fishing and photography stuff. So if you're interested in that, feel free to. But uh, the the business or the professional one on Instagram is physio underscore praxis. And that's P-R-A-X-I-S. Are you smoking any meat in your uh, in that fly fishing one or is it just purely fly fishing? You know, I don't think I've put pictures of uh smoking on there i'll have to consider that i so most of my photography is specific to outdoor type stuff occasionally i'll do other stuff but yeah it's just i i enjoy it i actually do it um i try not to make money on things that i really enjoy uh i figure i should make money in the things that i do but then have other things that i invest a lot of time and effort in that bring me nothing financial um so Photography is something I've sh- I've shot for a decent number of places. A lot of times I'll trade like a photo shoot for a guide trip or something like that. Oh, and nice. so keep it within some of the uh, yeah. Yeah, fishing that's, side of things. That's great. Now, I, I'm going to have to check that out. I don't know if I follow that. I'll, I'll, have, to, I'll yeah. have to find it. That'd be great. So awesome. Well, Scott, thanks again for taking a ton of time. This is a big episode. But and, and again, I we just scratched the surface of this topic. But, um, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to to break down some of those complexities for everybody and make it easier. So thanks again for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Mike. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please share this with your friends to help spread the word. It would really mean so much to me. Please check out all my online courses, articles, newsletter, and more at MikeRano.com. There's always a ton of great perks for my newsletter subscribers. And also be sure to search for my other podcast, The Ask Mike Reinald Show, where my team of physical therapists, strength coaches, and I answer your questions. See you on the next episode.